on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Nadia Williams about cultural Christians. We cover all sorts of topics, like what did the early Christians think about social change? How did they go about that? Was Is there an assumption today that the early Christians were radically devoted to Christ, more so than us, and why? Is cultural Christianity a, a modern concept? Is it most likely to occur in cultures where Christianity is dominant? Is Christian nationalism a sin? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we try to remind our listeners, whether you're a longtime listener or a brand new listener who has never listened to anything from us before, that when we mean serious thinking, we mean it in a couple of different ways. It's not just, let's be really critical thinkers, because we've got this sort of four C's that we've tried to say we want to create an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So what that does is it tries to lay out sort of like the ethos of what we think healthy Christian thinking should be. It should be critical thinking in a level of where if you look at evangelicals for the most part over the last, I don't know how many years it's been, where there's been like a lack of interest in the life of the mind, we want to say, no, 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 that matters. But we also want to say that charity uh, matters. We actually should care about treating people with respect and honor. And we should be curious about what they say and why they say it so we can have severe disagreements and yet still uh, say, you know what, this is cool. Tell me why you think this. Uh, maybe I'll learn something. So that's what we are trying to do uh, with the podcast. We have people all across uh, the map theologically, and we have all sorts of uh, topics, whether that's proper theology or whether that's something more philosophical or more historical. And today it's going to be a little bit of a mix, I think, of the historical and theological. So this will be a lot of fun. We have Dr. Nadia Williams with us, and she has written a brand new book on cultural Christians. And it's, to me, I've, I've been thumbing through it. I haven't read the whole thing yet, um, but it's been very fascinating to me because it's not what I had anticipated. I had a, I had sort of a concept in my mind of some of the things she's challenging and pointing out and saying, no, that's not actually how it is. So clearly I need to read the book myself in full because I've got a, a misunderstanding about some things. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, before we get started, uh, Dr. Williams, tell me a little bit about yourself and then I'd love for you to, to walk me through why it is you wrote the book. I know in the very beginning you, you give these three reasons. I thought they were fantastic, so I'd love for you to sort of expand on those. Absolutely, and thank you for having me on here. It's uh, a delight to talk to you. Uh, I've listened to a number of episodes, and I appreciate the work that you're doing in cultivating uh, a life of the mind that very much uh, appreciates uh, who we are as God's creatures and the call to love God with all our mind, but also obviously uh, heart, soul, um, strength. So uh, my background is in classics, uh, Greco-Roman antiquity. Uh, my PhD is in classics with a focus on ancient history. And I had spent most of my academic career studying Greek and Roman military history in particular. And in general, the ancient world, even if you think um, reading the New Testament, if the only exposure you have to the Roman Empire is reading the New Testament, you realize what a violent uh, place it was. Um, just that was part of the worldview of the Roman world, um, that people 
uh, people do not have to be, you know, the idea of charity that you described, this is very much a Christian thing that did not naturally exist in the Roman world. Um, and so when I turned to, um, to study in the early church, I was fascinated with what makes, what sets Christians apart, but also the struggle. So we know that the culture in which we live, and by we, I mean any people living in any time period, um, were influenced by it. And so I was really fascinated with the idea of how do you struggle to be um, living in the world, but not off this world. And uh, kind of my big point is that it was never easy. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of, of the book that we have a misconception about the superiority of sort of these the, the Christians in this period. And I think I've heard that a million times. And probably the, the, the common trope is, you know, they're the persecuted church and they were all like, everybody's super serious. So if you're a Christian, you're just totally dedicated. And you seem to be saying, no, that's not actually the case for a lot of Christians in this period. So like, just give me a little bit of a sampling of what life was like for Christians in these first couple of centuries. Yeah, so I think a lot of times we, um, when we think of the early church, we think of the famous names, and a lot of the famous names are going to be your martyrs. Uh, there's a reason why we call the nameless multitudes the nameless multitudes. So for a lot of, um, the vast majority of early Christians, obviously, we don't know their names. We don't know their stories in a personal way. Uh, but already starting with the New Testament, we get a picture of congregations and the problems they went through. So um, I lean pretty heavily, for example, on Paul's letters because we get a whole lot of information about the Corinthian church, for example, and the struggles they had with uh, different kinds of cultural sins and the problem of what is it like to be a Christian living in a um, really established uh, traditional Greek city in the Roman Empire. So all of those kind of angles. So a lot of times we just um, we just think of the really famous names. But um, that's where kind of the modern, I guess it's um, it's been around now for several decades, but the idea of doing history from below is really helpful for us as Christians as we think about the early churches. What was it like to be um, a Christian in, say, the first or second or third century church? And someone like Paul is a much better source for us. And in general, I think about it um, with also... Um, documents we have from sermons getting into the second, third, fourth century. Um, think about the kinds of things that your pastor might gripe about or complain about or rebuke the congregation about on a Sunday morning. A lot of times the kind of details that make it into a sermon, your pastor is not going to name somebody by name and say, I would really like so-and-so to just like stop behaving in a particular way, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, instead, you might get kind of a sermon on that topic that clearly is speaking to somebody without naming names. So those kinds of things like reverse reading uh, are really illuminating, just like they would be today if you looked at somebody's sermons. Okay, so you mentioned the idea of a sermon. I, I feel like I've heard from numerous people that sermons didn't actually exist until the Reformation, or pick your pick your date, whatever it is. It is you know, like the modern concept of a guy coming up and giving a, a lecture on, on something didn't exist. Is that true, or, or how should I think about what a sermon is in the early church? 
I guess this is one of those things like what how do you define it so um, even something like Paul's letters in some way are sort of almost like um, they kind of belong in that category so you get a letter to a church that somebody um, was meant to read out to that church so if by sermon you mean something edifying delivered probably on a Sunday morning to a congregation um, I think we've got plenty of those Uh, some people might prefer to call them homilies Um, a lot of them uh, take the shape of uh, treatises that were circulated so not necessarily something that was written to be delivered once and retired. Uh, but by the time we get to Augustine, it seems like we have things that look genuinely like sermons also. Yeah. So now y- your book ha- has cultural Christianity in the title. I mean, tell me, is this a modern concept of cultural Christianity? Is it not? Um and is it more likely to occur in cultures that are more do- like dominant, dominated by Christianity? Because I think, at least as I've thought about the term culture Christianity, it seems like that's only something that could happen in a culture that was dominated by Christianity. So is that not the case? So the answer is yes and no. So let me kind of backpedal. Uh, had I not been living in a culture dominated by Christianity, I would never have thought to ask the questions that led to this book. So the entire time that I was writing this book, I was living and teaching um, in the Bible Belt in Georgia. Uh, and that's kind of what gave me this um, this topic, because my students repeatedly uh, were expressing those ideas that uh early Christians were not like us, but also I saw behaviors and beliefs that suggested something that um, was really kind of a mock. So the definition that I use for cultural Christianity, cultural Christians, um, the way I define it in this book, are people who do go to church most Sundays, maybe not every Sunday, but most Sundays they will go to church and really kind of uh, seem to pay attention to um, what it means to be a Christian. But then the rest of the week, it's all kind of compartmentalized and they just live lives like, um, well, according to the values of the society around them. So the culture, so the cultural Christians. So on any poll or survey, they will self-identify as Christians. But other than those couple of hours on Sunday morning, you might not even be able to tell if you um, interacted with them in any other setting. So we think, by contrast, in the early church, precisely because of persecutions or because it costs you something to say, I'm a Christian, I'm not uh, a Roman of a traditional type, um, we think clearly no one would do this. Like, why would you take on this sacrifice? Uh, But my point is that culture is a lot more insidious than that. Um, I really appreciate... um, Historian uh, Chris Shannon has described culture as secondhand smoke. And I love that image because that's what it is. Like you breathe it in, it soaks into your pores, into your clothing. You have no idea because you're so immersed in it. Well, now I have a new way to introduce the podcast. Every time I introduce a guest, I'm going to talk about how we want to create an intellectual culture like secondhand smoke. Um <laughs> <laughs> of a better but, kind, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. So 
I, I do want to know the way you've defined cultural Christianity. Is cultural Christianity, a, in your mind, a good or a bad or a neutral thing? I just recently, like a couple of weeks ago, listened to a podcast that was essentially defending, no, cultural Christianity is actually a very good thing for us because it gives us, there's there's different things it can give us that if we lost that, we wouldn't have. So I'm just curious from your perspective, is it good, neutral, or bad? I think it's all of those things, depending on the aspect you looked at. Um, I don't know if you read um, a few weeks ago, Louis Paris' um, essay in First Things, We Are Repaganizing. And I thought that was really powerful because she talks about the idea of cultural cultural Christian views of life uh, have impacted for the last 2,000 years how we think about the value of human life, which is exactly the case. In the Roman world, if you were not a particular uh, type of person, if you were not an aristocrat, uh, male, healthy, and so on, your life had no value. Um, but in the modern world, so as we talk about kind of the ethic of life today, without the Christian, without the Judeo-Christian idea of the Imago Dei, we've got nothing to stand on. So, for example, when it comes to those issues of life, um, we very much lean on cultural Christianity, even if we're not thinking about it. And in areas like Canada, where this is disappearing, where you see a secular culture, post-Christian culture taking over, things are not looking good, like euthanasia. Um, But this is not to say that cultural Christianity is always a good thing. And the reality is, if we love God, if we want to serve God, we do not want something that's a pale imitation of belief. We do not want a pale imitation of the real thing. And that's where the danger is with cultural Christianity. Yes, we can pick out some good things from it and say, well, at least it's better for a culture than like post-Christian secularism. Um but it's not the real thing. It's not the full goodness that Christ wants to offer us. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So give me, I don't know, what, what's your favorite example from, from the book? You've got several chapters here. You know, you're going through the early church and then the church after the, or in the age of Constantine and beyond. Uh, which one's your favorite? And tell me a little bit about it. Well, one that I've thought about because it's so much... It's so us in a 21st century kind of um, the treat yourself culture, the um, the idea of self-care, like self-care, you know, you need self-care. This is a good thing. Um, and it's become this weird idol. Uh, and you can say no to all kinds of like, to all kinds of um, asks on your time because you can say like, well, I, I really need to prioritize my self-care. And what I really love is... Um, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage, who was leading a church at a time of just tumult, persecution, and also a pandemic, where um, he addresses his uh, people and says, some of you have refused to take care of the sick and dying because you wanted to save yourself for a death in martyrdom. So like the whole idea of these are people who are taking care of themselves in this weird way. On the one hand, they're saying, we really want to die a martyr's death. But on the other hand, saying, because we want to die this martyr's death, we just don't care about like anyone else in our community who needs our care. So to me, this is like the quintessential problem with self-care, but also just kind of putting yourself first. Um, and in this particular case, we also see 
uh, a cultural aspect seep in because in the Greco-Roman world, dying a really spectacular death, especially on a battlefield, I mean, that's a classic Homeric value. That's what Achilles wants. Um, it's like, I'd rather die famous and live forever in like epic memory than uh, live to an old age and never be known. So we see all of these things kind of mixing together in a way that's actually relatable to our culture where we really want to be in control of how we live and so on and so forth. That's that's very interesting. Though I, I will say I like the treat yourself uh, image in uh, Parks and Rec. That's one of my favorite uh, gifts that is out there. I I would love for you to tell me a little bit about the chapter on the, uh, you've got the unholy bodies, unholy minds, resisting the cultural views of sexuality. Give me a little bit of what's going on there. Yeah, so um, this is obviously something that is a hot button topic for us today, uh, but it was in the Roman world also. So in that chapter, among other examples, I talk about um, Ovid, the Roman poet who um, managed to say something so scandalous about sexuality that the Emperor Augustus exiled him. Um, so Ovid wrote this um, poem that's uh, probably tongue-in-cheek, but it's essentially a manual on seducing women, and it gets pretty raunchy. Um, and what we get from this is this really scandalous idea of Roman pickup culture. Um, and if you look at some of the other sources, including uh, archaeological materials uh, from Pompeii, you see a lot of just overt um, sexualization um, of bodies. And what I'm arguing is, on the one hand, on the one hand, it's tempting for people to read something like this and say, well, look at these liberated people. Um, but if you look deeper, what you realize is that this is a really um, a culture that treated people in a hierarchical fashion. And if you were powerful, you could abuse anyone in any way you wanted. And it just didn't matter. Like they, their voice did not matter. So instead of glorifying the Roman Empire as this libera uh, liberated progressive place, we should see that abuse and see how uh, Christians resisted that and or tried to resist it. The problem is, um, because it was so ingrained uh, in the Roman culture, so for example, prostitution was just commonplace and no one thought much about it. Um, when Paul talks to the Corinthians, so coming back to the Corinthian church, that's one of the problems that um, he points out there, um, that here are married men from the church who frequent prostitutes and Paul is outraged. Well, for somebody living in the Roman Empire, it was like, well, I mean, the cost of a prostitute is basically like a cost of lunch. It's easily affordable. So what's the problem? And for Paul, this is uh, the whole idea is you cannot do this as a Christian. Uh, so suddenly we see this idea that was scandalous, that the same standards of purity apply to men just as to women. Because in the Roman Empire, yes, those standards applied to respectable mar married women, uh, but nobody before that had held men to those same standards. So I've got all sorts of questions to follow up, I feel like. On this. Absolutely. Um, one of those is, as we think about the context of the early Christians and this sort of culture on sexuality, is there anything that we can glean as Christians today to say, these things were powerful influences to stop that sort of culture or to create a counterculture 
of of Christians? I think that's a great question, and it really gets, I think, into uh, pastoral authority, but also cultivating healthy culture within each congregation. What's striking is Paul writes this letter, and we know that the church took action, because later we hear that they fixed those issues. But what's striking is that no one thought of interfering before Paul wrote to them. And that's so typical. I mean, even in churches today, you think we don't like confrontation. So a lot of times in a church, uh, maybe even the body of elders might know that there's like somebody engaging a really prodigious sin. Uh, but who wants to take it on their busy schedule to have this confrontation? Will it even be fixed? Maybe the people in question will just leave the church and go somewhere else. And and then you feel like maybe you did more damage than good. Uh, these are the kinds of things congregations split over um, and so on. But the question is, um, how do you address it? And do you just let it go? And of course, for Paul, um, the solution is you have to talk about it. Um, but again, you have to talk about it in a healthy way that is not just um, singling some people, not others, and being inconsistent. Uh, but it is striking, again, that all of these people knew the teachings of the church. It's not like this was uh, a shock, but somehow they just could not understand how it all applied to their lives. Because, again, secondhand smoke. Yeah, okay. So now the, you mentioned the idea that, I guess, there's an expectation for women to be pure, whereas not so for men. Why is that the case in that culture? And do you think that is a similar issue today? So in the Greco-Roman world, uh, that just had to do with issues of paternity in particular. Um, but um, just in general, like when we say patriarchal, patriarchal culture. Um, that's what we're talking about. The Greco-Roman world was a deeply patriarchal culture um, in the sense that um, women were held to a completely different standards than men. Um, in classical Athens, um, one of the few instances in the law about justified homicide was if a man catches his wife with another man in his home, he can kill uh, the adulterer on the spot. So that was justified homicide, precisely because it was viewed so uh, like such a serious transgression. And you have to keep in mind that uh, illegitimate children were not citizens um, in any um, Greco-Roman state. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So, so as we think about it today, what's the application for us today? Like, how do we think about, I guess, uh, subverting sort of this uneven, inappropriate sort of like balance to where it doesn't matter what men do? Because um, I guess I think of, I mean, is it with the sexual revolution and the introduction of contraception across the board where suddenly sort of the, I guess, the baggage that could come with no longer needing to have children or no, long, no longer the potential of having children allows sort of like both sexes to like treat things um, in a way that only men could in the past. I don't know if that question makes sense. I'm just trying to think about it today, how it connects to this. Well, this is separating our bodies from our souls. Like even um, this way of thinking 
if a Christian today told me that this is how they're thinking about it, that like, well, the sexual revolution, especially um, the introduction of the pill has removed any responsibility. So why do I have to worry about it? That's what I would say is um, you're kind of verging on Gnosticism here. Um, our, our, bodies, our bodies are still holy. It doesn't matter. Um, who we are in God's sight has not changed because of any modern technology. And so those kinds of standards are still exactly the same. Um, and if we believe that God is a holy God, then again, we would still follow that. So in some ways, what I would say in response is this is completely irrelevant. You know, technological changes of all kinds of sorts are going to continue, but um, God is the same. And as his creatures, so are we. Yeah. Now you've got, I mean, you've got like, I guess all the chapters in here could be uh, nice kindling of some sorts. Uh, one of those especially is the chapter of the altar and the cross, Christian nationalism and the twilight of empire. Give me the the sketch of what you're arguing there. And I imagine I'll have some interesting follow-up questions to it because that, I mean, if you want to sell a book, this is this is the way to do it. So let let's let's get everybody to say we want to buy the book because everybody loves talking about Christian nationalism apparently today. <laughs> yeah, and perhaps uh, the way I approach it is uh, maybe more boring or maybe not. So what I'm arguing is that Augustine was the first one to write a manifesto against Christian nationalism, and that's how we should read um, the City of God. So what I'm arguing is up until uh, 410 CE, when the Goths sacked Rome, um, Christianity has always existed up to that point in the context of the Roman Empire. And so for both Romans and for Christians, there was this veneration of the empire. Um, Christians didn't even realize to what extent they held the Roman Empire as almost like an idol. Um, and so a lot of Christians felt betrayed when the Goths took Rome and suddenly they're there's this repercussion. Uh, first of all, obviously, like the slaughter of people when the largest city of the empire was captured. Uh, and there are all kinds of just trauma that reverberates through the empire, including uh, for Augustine, just kind of the question of how could God let this happen? Um, and what Augustine comes away with is we've idolized this city and the real city we should look for is the city of God. Um, so whenever we look at Rome, um, whenever we ask God, why would you destroy Rome? This is our idol asking that question. So to me, that was a powerful reminder that whenever we ask, like, why did su such and such a thing befall the, the United States? Like, that is not the right question to be asking. This is not our eternal city. So tell me, in your mind, how are you thinking about Christian nationalism as it relates to the conversation today? Because, I mean, depending on who I talk to, I get 10 different definitions of it. And so the way you're describing, you know, Augustine's critique of Christian nationalism might not map on to how somebody else thinks of what it means to be a Christian nationalist. If if you would put America first before God, <laughs> then I think you're definitely a Christian nationalist. So with any of these things, the question is, what are your idols? What shakes your faith? Uh, does what happened in politics today shake your faith? If so, again, like you have an idol uh, that uh, places the country and its politics or something uh, along those lines ahead of um, God's 
rule over your life, um, over which perhaps you don't always have a clear explanation. Uh, so, and that's exactly what Augustine is talking about. We do not know um, why certain things happen. Uh, I mean, like right now, as we're recording this, there's a war raging in Israel. So things like that, whenever we ask like, God, why is this happening? On the one hand, yes, uh, we should be asking this question. But on the other hand, if we blame God for something like this, and if it shakes our faith, uh, then we've we've allowed something to take the place of God in our hearts. So... I guess it's been, I, I read City of God, I don't know how many years ago now. I I remember I took it on the plane with me and my wife as we visited Italy so I could be the nerd that hangs, you know, holds up Augustine City of God as I'm by the Colosseum or whatever. Um, so I guess as I think about it, I don't know, would he necessarily be like, I want the the Roman Empire to fall, or might he say, "Well, I I prefer the Roman Empire to exist and to continue, and us to continue to Christianize it in some way." So the reason I'm asking that is just because I'm thinking about the the people who are. I mean, we've got a, pe- a lot of people who listen to our podcast, people who probably think Christian nationalism is heresy, and people who think like, "Let's let's go storm the Capitol again tomorrow." Um, all, everybody in between. So I'm just trying to like ask the appropriate questions here. So the one I'm thinking about in this case is, I don't know, are there, is there a place to be a Christian nationalist by meaning I care about my country, I care about God first, but there's like some sort of like intertwined relationship to where there's a prosperity if I, almost like an Israelite sort of, if I do good things, then we'll reap benefits. Does that make sense? It does. And I think Augustine would be on board with that. Because part of what we see running throughout the city of God is a sorrow. The sorrow for the loss of this great city. The sorrow for people who died because of the sack of Rome. And so on. There is um, there is a genuine trauma that even Augustine himself is feeling as he is writing this. Uh, so it seems like in a lot of ways, he is preaching to himself just as much as he is preaching to others as he writes this response and encourages people to continue to love God and trust God after the fall of Rome. So um, I think that is encouraging to us because it seems like every generation of humanity, like no matter what period, every generation feels like they're living through the worst of it, through the end times. Um, And it seems like, I mean, we're feeling it too just like Augustine's audiences did. So we need that kind of encouragement. Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned is sort of like the the reality that I think a lot of like political activism can only do so much for really changing sort of the culture. Um, I think you mentioned the idea of focusing on conversion and sanctification. It is which seems to me like a much a classic Ameri- like when i read i don't know american christians from the 18th 19th 20th century that seems to be like their social change program conversion billy graham i think of billy graham you know like you you, you can't ultimately change the culture without changing somebody's heart is that is that what you're trying to argue in a lot of ways yes although i would 
push back against somebody like Billy Graham and the idea of the large crusades with people you don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a front porch republic style kind of think local, like plant roots and conversion uh, will happen through friendships, connections, the local church. Love the people who are around you that you know, as opposed to conversion in this like abstract way. Like let's convert people. It's like, well, who are these people? Can you name them by name? Because that is what we should be doing. Um, as we live this out. And that's exactly what even um, on the one hand, Augustine is writing for kind of like masses of people in general. On the other hand, he's very much a local bishop who knew his people by name. And that's that's the case for a lot of these early church leaders that I'm writing about, including Paul. I mean, Paul rattled off a lot of names in his letters. So there's always that personal. Uh, whenever we think about change, about changing the culture, it starts with people we know, people we befriend, people we interact with in our communities. So in your mind, is this a book that you would tell churches and pastors, like, I think this would really be useful for particular sort of groups or particular settings? Absolutely. I was trying to write something here that was not an academic kind of put it on a pretty shelf in the library kind of book. I really want this to start conversations. And I would say, um, as is probably clear from my answers to your questions, uh, somebody who picks it up might not agree with 100% of what I'm saying. Uh, but the point is, uh, we are struggling with culture. Uh, we have a lot of problems, whatever, whichever way we define something like Christian nationalism, or however we feel about it, we feel like something is not right. And that something is just as much spiritual as, um, well, probably more spiritual, I would argue, than, say, political. So we are feeling that angst, and we need to be thinking about it. And I'm hoping that looking at this history at the, from the perspective of the early church provides useful conversation starters for today. Yeah, I like that, the idea of opening up conversations. From my reading of it, that seems to be a really nice um, way to describe how it would would function in sort of like group reading contexts. You're talking about a lot of important uh, topics that everybody's interested in inherently, naturally. So sort of like comparing and contrasting these two things, uh, I think would provide some really good discussions in those contexts. So I like that. Um, while I have you here, I, I want to ask this question before I forget. Um, I think in theological circles, there's a lot of testosterone. And so I, but when you read the New Testament, you find all these women doing all these ministry related things. Um I want to know, tell me, as a woman in scholarship in academia who is doing some theological work, I know your, your primary vocation is in classics and things, tell me a little bit about, like, do you have advice for other women who are curious or interested in these sort of things? And do you have advice for um, maybe pastors? We have a lot of pastors who listen to, like, how, how can you encourage um, women to pursue the life of the mind as it relates to these sort of things? I mean, I'm a complementarian, so you can speak to those people as well as like, given if you think that's true, I know not everybody's a complementarian, I am, so I think probably more of our listeners are in that in that sphere. So just like, think like, how could you advise those different segments of people? I think that's a great question, and that's something that um, I've thought a lot about. I've talked to my husband a lot about it. Uh, I've spent all of my Christian life in complementarian churches. I'm very comfortable and happy with them. Um, 
sometimes reading the news uh, stories, it feels like I'm maybe the exception, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. Um, but what I found is actually uh, a healthy complementarian church is much more encouraging towards women than an egalitarian church because um, because of the idea that uh, what complementarianism really should mean is each of us has different kinds of giftings that God wants to use for the church, as opposed to all of us being completely interchangeable. And I really like this idea that we're not interchangeable. We have special gifts. We have something to offer. And what it means for complementarian churches, complementarian pastors, is you want to hear those voices. You want to read those voices, precisely because I see things differently, because God made me um in a way that is not like my husband, for example. And so um, it, re- it really is fascinating uh, being married to another historian who is a much um, better educated theologian than I am and discussing these things, but also realizing we see the world differently. Um, and God uses that for the kingdom. So listen to those voices. That's what I would say, especially to complementarian pastors and so on. Uh, you have a better theology in some ways for appreciating those voices so much more. Now, you also, I know, I think I read, I don't remember where you wrote this. You wrote, I think I think you wrote this essay on like the, the joys of, of writing and researching late at night because you have kids. And I, I resonated with that deeply, um, but I, I would love for you to give me just a little bit of advice in your mind of like doing, trying to do research and scholarship while also having ch- uh, children and making sure that you're caring for them appropriately. Um, I just give me some advice there. I think the main advice I can give you is just have peace and know that God will redeem your time. That's um, it's so. It's so wonderful, but also so wonderfully stressful to have, especially like you right now, have a newborn at home. And yet I felt like God has really redeemed uh, the time that I've been able to set aside. And I don't use a lot of time each day for writing, but that's what it is where um, even like those little things, whenever... uh, Whenever I'm working on a project, I usually try to set aside a little bit of time each day. So those late night writing sessions, um, even if they're not very long, even if it's something like an hour, um, a lot of times it really adds up and it adds up to books, uh, apparently. Mm-hmm. It's almost, yeah. it's kind of crazy over time. So yes, <laughs> but enjoy that baby, now, like hold that baby. I, I want to know in, in your research for this book, as it's now coming out, was there, what was, I guess maybe, maybe there wasn't anything, but I am curious if there was, what was it that maybe surprised you the most in the writing of this book? That's a good question. Uh, perhaps what surprised me is that all of these that the story that I was telling was a cultural Christian story. When I first started it, when I was first kind of writing the first few chapters, I was thinking that I was telling the story of sinners in the early church that like, well, here here are all these people that we always thought like the early churches were so much holier than we are. And here are so many sinners. Um, and I think the surprising kind of aha moment that really made the book click and come together was the realization. I'm talking about cultural sinners, that that was the common element that really brought it all together, that this was a book not specifically about sin and sinners in the church, um, but a book about culture and how culture creates 
cultural Christians who people who commit cultural sins. Gotcha. So I've really enjoyed this and you've got a, I think, a, is there like a, a landing page website? If people want to go find out more about the book, Zondervan yes. has something up, I think. Okay. Yes, they do. Awesome. So you, I'll, I'll make sure to link to that in the episode so you guys can go find that as well as linking to the book so you can go find a copy of the book. Um, the cool thing about publishing with uh, publishers like Zondervan is they don't usually charge you $85 like Oxford does um, so that you can actually afford it and still feed your kids or feed yourself, whatever it is. Um, so that, thank you for publishing with somebody that we can afford to to read. We, You know, I interview people all the time that publish with the, the university presses, but like I realize that this is probably the closest you're going to get unless you have institutional access to get the PDF versions. So thanks uh, for doing that. I do want to give one last question for you. Is is there a place or a location that people can most often find you and your writing or your resources? Uh, I'm book review editor for Current, um, and I'll give you the link if you wanted to link that. And also, I run a blog there, The Arena. So uh, people may be more familiar with uh, John Fia, um, who was kind of the one who started the project together with uh, Jay Green from Covenant College and Eric Miller from Geneva College. Um, so I was a later kind of addition to the team, but it's been a lot of joy to write um, and um, yeah, work with that. Awesome. Well, tremendous. This has been fantastic. Um, I want to encourage everybody to go check out the book. Uh, I, I, it, you know, she mentioned she's not writing it for an academic audience though. I mean, it's an academic book, but it's, it, it is written in a way that people can understand. So I do want to commend that in that aspect. And I, now I've, I'm remembering one other question that I wanted to ask you while you're here resources just generally on Greco-Roman culture. If people want to study that and understand that more, what are your top go-to resources? I remember in college, I had a course on like the, the sort of like the Greco-Roman context. And I can't remember what books I had, um, but I'd love for you to just give me who, which ones do you think are the best? I would say start with the epics because the epic mindset very much influences how people think. Uh, so I mentioned Homer, for example, as the inspiration for people who wanted to be martyrs. So reading Homer's Iliad, Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid will give you an idea of the things that every single halfway mildly educated Greek and Roman knew and that when they converted, they brought with them to the Bible. Uh, there's a lot more. Just in general, I wish Christians read, that's kind of one of my pet peeves. I wish Christians read more Greco-Roman literature, you know, like tragedy um, from the Greek world, uh, because it would really uh, inform your, uh, your understanding of the Bible, of the education that people brought with them. You know, I am always reminded when I'm talking to a historian, because when I ask like a, a more theologically oriented person that question, I get a bunch of secondary sources. <laughs> and then I talk to somebody like you, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to read the primary sources. Yeah, yes, you do. Well, I mean, and that's such a Christian response. I mean, whenever somebody asks you a theological question, presumably uh, you would you would start naming books of the Bible that might like address it. It's like, go read Romans again or, you know, uh, 
read this particular letter of Paul. So the same thing should apply to when we think about uh, the Greco-Roman world. Uh, we have so many primary sources. We wish we had more, but we have enough to be able to read and really get to know um, the literary culture in which the early Christians were steeped. Yeah, man. This, well, this has been this has been awesome. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, I'll make sure everybody go check out the resources, like I mentioned. Um, I'll link to the current as uh, as well, so that you guys can go check that out and keep up with with everything there. So thanks, Dr. Williams, for doing this. This has been a ton of fun. And as always, everybody's been tuning in. Thanks for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.